Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I talked to Lale Khalili, Professor of International Relations at Queen Mary University of London and author of Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. We recorded this episode before the current crisis that's underway in the Suez began, but the conversation is obviously fascinating in light of what is currently going on in international shipping as we speak. Uh, in this episode, we discuss the fascinating architecture and infrastructure that underpins global shipping internationally and what these networks tell us about state power, corporate sovereignty and imperialism. Thank you, as always, to our amazing patrons who make this show possible. If you want to access the full hour-long episode, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash worldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. And if you want to support the show another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Lale Khalili on what she learned during her time on a freighter. Hello, Lale Khalili, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. And it's very nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. Great. Right. So um, today I want to talk a little bit about your book, Sinews of War and Trade, which I really thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I just found it really kind of absorbing and atmospheric as well as, um, you know, obviously really kind of interesting and engaging. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about what made you want to write this, what you call an amphibian history of capitalism from the perspective of the Arabian Peninsula? Um, yeah, there were several things that led to the writing of the book. Um, when I was finishing my previous book, which was about counterinsurgencies um, being fought in the Middle East primarily, but also their their history, you know, and, um, elsewhere in the world, um, I interviewed uh, a U.S. military officer who said something to me to the effect that most of the people who actually wanted to talk about war tended to want to talk about the bleeding edge of it, as as, as he said. Whereas what really um, he said, what's really interesting and what you really should be paying attention to is the logistics end. It's the boring stuff behind the scenes. And when I started looking at that, that was one aspect of it which really interested me. And I really wanted to find out a little bit more about the logistics process. But the second element that came about was a friend who worked for International Transport Workers Federation mentioned to me in passing that they were really interested in research on uh, Dubai in particular, because of course, Jabal Ali port is um, on the top 10 list of the ports in the world, the only port not in East or Southeast Asia that is on that list. And so they were wondering whether that would be something I would be interested in researching. And, and again, when I started looking at that, it seemed to me that those elements of war and commerce seemed to be incredibly intertwined in the Arabian Peninsula. And so that's how I ended up researching that for the book. Mm. You spend a bit of time on freighters as part of your research. Can you tell us a bit about what that must be like? Because it feels like, from your descriptions and from other descriptions, almost kind of otherworldly. I mean, I could be very frivolous and say it is probably the hands down the best uh, field research I have ever done. Uh, and it, wow. it, although frivolous, it is true. Part of what is interesting about it is I went as a passenger. I've had friends who've also done research on logistics who actually went as participant observers and therefore as workers on board. So their experience was slightly different than mine because um, uh, in, in a way they had to work uh, on a day to day and had, they had much more oh. of a sense of the tedium and the backbreaking difficulties of work aboard 
one of these ships. I went as a passenger, which meant that I, during the meals, I sat at the table with the various um, officers. Uh, it meant that I uh, ate with the officers. I talked with the officers. I could talk to anybody I wanted to at any stage. I could wander around. And just about, I could go just about anywhere as long as the captain or whoever was in charge at that stage knew that I was, for example, walking on deck. I'd had to get permission to go into the engine room because you have to wear helmets and protective gear and things like that. And somebody has to guide you the whole way. It's, it's like a infernal temperatures and burning hot um, uh, engine parts and things like that down there. So, But in a sense, I had quite a lot of freedom to move around. What was interesting about the process was the routineness of life aboard these ships. And you become incredibly aware of the way the world of labor aboard a ship is deeply hierarchical. You know, you have this incredible hierarchies of work where you have the officers and then the crew. And in addition to being deeply hierarchical, also what was really interesting about it was, as I said, it was incredibly repetitive work. It is uh, whether you're in the wheel room as an officer and you're trying to fix the maps or look at the, you know, look at your route and adjust the route, or you're one of the crew members and, um, working on the deck and chipping rust and painting the place, or you're in the engine room fixing stuff, it is incredibly repetitive and very backbreaking, difficult work. So that to me was fascinating about the whole process. Can you tell us a little bit about the idea of flags of convenience? This is, I think, something that a lot of people are intrigued about when we talk about global shipping. What are they? What purpose do they serve? And what does it mean for life on board a freighter? So Flags of Convenience is a name that the International Transport Workers Federation gave to what more formally it's called open registries for ships. If you imagine that businesses often try to escape sets of regulations and procedures and processes that would uh, enforce, for example, labor laws or environmental laws, and they, they do this through a whole series of mechanisms. Offshore registrations in tax havens, for example, for businesses is one of those ways. Mm. So there are these places, you know, and within countries as well. So, for example, Delaware in the U.S. has incredibly lax corporate registry procedures, which is why so many corporations are registered there. But then you have also these places where people go um, to offshore registration of their businesses. And that doesn't have to be shipping. That, As you know, loads of businesses do that. So shell companies and things like that. Open registries or international uh, or, or what International Transport Workers Federation calls flags of convenience are registries, ship registries that emerged um, in uh, the 19-teens and 1920s in places, I think this is what's particularly interesting about this, in places that were essentially within the U.S.'s imperial reach. They were major imperial clients. In a couple of instances, they were in fact sort of extensions, occupied places that the U.S. controlled in colonial ways at that stage. And these open registries essentially allowed for shipping companies to register their ships, uh, individual ships, um, and fly the flag of that open registry. So a Panama or a Liberia or an El Salvador or Costa Rica. And by flying that the flag of that country, you essentially say that this ship is under the laws and regulations of that country. And that means that, you know, we've known this for um, nearly 100 years now, these ships, or actually more than 100 years now, these ships essentially managed to escape labor laws, managed to escape environmental regulations, don't have to pay income tax in many of these places, and they don't um, often have to have adequate insurance. And, you know, they're dependent if something goes wrong with the ship, the world's ship 
shipping business is dependent on those countries of open registries, uh, sort of investigating what went wrong. And often these places don't have the necessary resources to be able to do something like that. And so what you end up finding is that these open registries tend to be a way for corporations to escape possible regulatory processes. International law and regulation are pretty central to your story in a lot of ways, from the flags that these ships fly under to SEZs and EPZs and all these various different acronyms for these different zones that exist around the world. Yeah. Um, And it's another book I think really brings out how capitalism increasingly reproduces itself through legal mechanisms or, as you've just been saying, by creating gaps in existing legal mechanisms into which they, uh, they can expand. And it's just a bit of a reminder that free markets are constructed rather than natural. And I'm wondering how you conceptualized the making of law and Mm. the class interests that played into that process or other interests. So that's a really uh, interesting question. And again, I started that particular interest in the law came from my work on counterinsurgencies and counterinsurgency confinement. So when I was doing mm. my previous book, one of the things that really struck me was that in, in mainstream conversation, not in, not in critical legal conversation, but in mainstream conversation, a lot of people would refer to Guantanamo Bay as a space of no law. And of course, when you look at it, you saw that Guantanamo Bay was in fact a place of surfeit of laws. It was a place of surfeit surfeit of regulations, but which produced the space in which the state could act in the ways it it wanted to because it had the ability to pick and choose from different kinds of legal constructs. And so once you begin to see that in the context of something so extreme as as mass detention, you know, outside the purviews of press or accountability, as one does in the case of Guantanamo Bay detention centers, you begin to see that kind of function in lots of other places. So in these places, law is not necessarily suspended. It is that, that, again, you have those who have a set of powers and resources, whether it's um, political bodies or, or corporations, what they have at their fingertips um, is, is the ability to pick and choose, is the ability to discard some things and, and, and call on other things. Now, one of the things that you mentioned, one of the things you asked about was, was what law does as a construct um, under capitalism. And of course, it's really also important to acknowledge that in many instances, law is actually about the protection of private property in many of these places. And so, in a sense, the legal constructs that emerge end up being really about establishing the domain in which contract can operate and those who enter contract are able to enforce their side of it. Contract being, of course, central to the accumulation of capital, both nationally and globally. And so, to me, this was incredibly obvious. Um, And law, of course, operates on a number of different levels. It operates in local senses, but it operates in the sense of treaties to which different parties are signatories in an international space. It it operates through enforcement, through bodies to which different kinds of uh, states and corporations somewhat voluntarily become party to. So, for example, international arbitral tribunals. But what is interesting about those is also that the element of voluntariness is itself kind of coerced in the sense, in the sense that the states and corporations that become party to these, for example, treaties that negotiate arbitration 
regions or which become uh, party to these different international sort of legal constructs that, as you say, enforce the sort of setting or, or create the setting for capital accumulation have to do so if they are to function within a capitalist system, if they are to attract, for example, foreign investments. And so that element of coercion dressed in the garb of necessity in the space of capital is what uh, is particularly interesting about how law functions in the shipping world, but in, in, in many others as well. And how do you think this speaks to the role of states in all the processes that you describe in your book? This is obviously a really big question, but I'm wondering if we can kind of speak of a lot of the infrastructure and architecture of global shipping as kind of distinctively state capitalist projects. Um, I'm not entirely sure that I would call it state capitalist necessarily. Certainly not in the case mm-hmm. of the, uh, the Arab states, in part because um, in, in those places it is not necessary, although many of the sort of the institutions that are engaged in this processes of capital accumulation are um, often state-led enterprises, but we're not, but, but this is not the kind of state capitalism that one can see in China or in Vietnam. It's a very yeah. different kind of thing. And This is something that I've been trying to think through and it's something that I'm still working on. But my sense is that in a, in a way, what in the context of North Atlantic, Europe and North, uh, uh, North America and perhaps, you know, other kind of developed uh, economies like Japan or Australia was called neoliberalism. And what was seen to start in the 1970s, where the state essentially becomes an adjunct to and a facilitator of the work of corporations is something that actually existed in the sort of the, the, the world that was previously colonized from very early on. The state was always uh, an adjunct of business, certainly in the colonized world, the kinds of client states that the British or the French cultivated, um, whether they were direct or indirect, often the role of the states in those instances was to facilitate the role of British or French, whoever the imperial master was, the work of their corporations in those spaces. And even in the post-colonial era, this is something that I've argued, and again, let me just advance this with a lot of tentative caveats and but my sense is that the thing that the kind of analytic construct that Kwame Nkrumah called neocolonialism is actually not that different from what we would call neoliberalism in the context of the North Atlantic world. Because what Nkrumah writes about when he talks about neocolonialism is that there's this ostensibly post-colonial moment in which the state is supposed to, the post-colonial state is supposed to have control over its own business, but it cannot function without actually access to these sets of global businesses, without the global businesses actually enforcing laws enforcing particular kinds of contractual elements on these states and therefore the state in these post-colonial states end up becoming embedded in these sets of global capitalist exploitations and of course Nkrumah is writing this at the end of the 1950s and so in a sense what we would consider to be neoliberal sets of relations between the state and corporations in the North Atlantic world is something that had existed in both colonial and post-colonial moments in many of these states in the global south so again this is all tentative and I, and I would, and I just advance this as something that I've been thinking about. But I think it's really important to also acknowledge that in the case of the, these shipping companies, in particular, because maritime transport, logistics, and, um, and infrastructures of various sorts tend to be the kinds of businesses that require an enormous amount of capital, uh, startup capital. And because they are also the kind of businesses that require technical know-how, it tends to be a space in which one sees the states in the global south really facilitate the work of corporations. And that kind of a public-private 
relationship often uh, tilting in the direction of the corporations is one that is familiar from a lot of these settings. In some cases, it becomes state capitalist, but in many other instances, it really is the state facilitating the work of corporations, uh, whether they're parastatal or uh, semi-state or or uh, entirely independent. The other thing that, I, and I have to just mention this very briefly, is that in the case of the, most of these countries in the Gulf, the royal families often have a stake uh, hidden under layers of secrecy and various other things. They have a stake in most of these businesses. So if you want, uh, it's not the state that uh, is capitalist, it's the royal families that are benefiting from the largesse of the state, from the income of the state, from essentially uh, treating the treasury as a sort of an extension of their own pocketbook. So, so that's also something that is very distinct about many of these Gulf Emirates and kingdoms. Mm. There's two routes now I think that I want to go down based on that really interesting analogy with uh, with uh, Nkrumah's concept of neocolonialism. One to do with the corporation and another to do with empire. I think I'll start with the question about the corporation. Yeah. Because you draw a lot on this idea of, of corporate sovereignty. Yeah. So, yeah, just as we were talking about, you know, states constructing and acting within markets, corporations, mm-hmm. as we've seen throughout the history of capitalism, often take on powers that are usually reserved for states. Can you talk to us a bit about some examples of this phenomenon in your book and tell us why it's more central to the history of capitalism than like a focus on, say, pure free market competition might suggest? Yeah, I mean, I was very much uh, sort of enchanted by the idea of corporate sovereigns by Mm. reading Philip Stern's book about the East India Company. East India Company, great book. It's an it's an amazing book and and what is really interesting about it is the way that he picks apart the sort of the commercial aspects of the work of the East India Company with the coercive elements. I think that to me that was mm. really really important that the, what makes many of these corporations sovereign in some senses is that they wield the kind of power that is often reserved to states or we think that they are reserved to states. So the forms mm. of securitization, the forms of uh, intervention in and I'm here using scare quotes if you could see me, uh, developmental policies, you know, that those kinds of things that often are reserved to the state end up being acts of these corporations. And what one can see, again, perhaps because shipping and maritime and logistics, whether of oil or whether of car- other kinds of dry cargo or manufactured goods or containers, it tends to be one of these, uh, again, as I said, tends to be one of these businesses that requires an enormous amount of upfront capital. And so you see that the kinds of corporations that get, end up being involved in these, even when they are supposedly independent, even when they're supposedly working in the free market, tend to have those aspects of sovereign statehood, which we don't often associate. So in the case of the Arabian Peninsula, I think one of the most striking examples of a company that was very much involved, deeply, profoundly involved in both maritime transport, but also extractive industries, and which did have a a finger in every kind of coercive pie uh, um, collaborated with the CIA, um, was very much involved in the development of sort of policing and militaries, was Aramco, which um, was until mm. the late 1970s um, owned by Standard Oil of California primarily. And so Aramco is once established in um, Saudi Arabia in the 1930s, and particularly from the 19, uh, in the 1950s uh, and from the 1950s onwards, so after the Second World War had ended, 
what one sees is that this is a corporation that makes decisions about not only what it's going to construct, not only about what it's going to extract, not only about how it's going to transport this stuff, but also about, for example, developmental policies, uh, for example, about transport infrastructures, both on land and at sea in Saudi Arabia. It becomes incredibly involved in all sorts of legal processes in Saudi Arabia. And in fact, in many of the cases where they sort of, for example, get involved in arbitration tribunals, um, these arbitration tribunals, which have been, uh, in fact, put in place in order to ensure the sovereignty of capital, what one can see is that it is absolutely obvious that Aramco uh, gets to decide elements, for example, even having access to concessions, having access to sovereignty mm. over territory, those kinds of things end up coming out in arbitration tribunals. And it's very striking. Now, Aramco is a very extreme example of this. But I think that you can see more of this, particularly when it comes to very large transportation industries uh, in, uh, in, in, in the Arabian Peninsula and elsewhere in the world. So to me, th- that was definitely an example of corporate sovereignty of a sort. How do you think that these networks of global shipping, the legal architecture within which they take place and the corporations involved within it stem from and reinforce imperialistic relationships, not necessarily just in the kind of militaristic sense that we might often associate with imperialism, but also in that kind of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, Leninist sense um, of kind of capital export and also the recycling of profits generated in these these states through kind of tax havens and other other networks? I think that's a really good question because I think what one sees, uh, you know, when, when, for example, you see capital emanating from, let's say, Singapore or from Dubai, um, so places that are not necessarily at the, if you want to use that old old school world of core of capitalist countries, or if it's Mm. not part of the North Atlantic, for example, trade, you begin to think, okay, well, maybe, you know, we have moved on from sort of the imperial configurations, which emanated from, say, a London or from a New York. But, But what becomes very clear is that even when capital emanates from other locations, even when, for example, China or Singapore end up having these massive sort of corporations that end up dominating the entire maritime industry, nevertheless, the rules within which they still operate are rules that are established in the sort of the 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 imperial world, which was once dominated by Britain and is now dominated by the US. So what do I mean by the rules? You look at accounting standards, you look at legal standards, you look at the tribunals, for example, that uh, that arbitrate different kinds of legal disputes or investment disputes. You look at uh, the sort of the legal constructs that dictate the sale and purchase of ships, but also their registration. You look at the, the, the kinds of countries that can dominate, for example, uh, such things as uh, the ability of tax havens to operate um, alongside other forms of, uh, you know, offshoring. So in all of these instances, it seems to me that the U.S. has has already established, but continues to establish, continues to dominate these sets of the U.S. and and I should say it's also Britain is really quite significant in these senses. So so for example, Britain is still. London is still the number one place um, in the world for maritime legal uh, support. So the, the biggest companies, uh, sort of law firms uh, dealing with maritime stuff are actually located here in London. Um, insurance, many of the sort of the rules of insurance have been established by the insurance firms that emerged out of London. Um, I already have mentioned accounting standards that emerge out of the US, but engineering standards are something also that comes out of US manufacturing and is spread around 
the world. So in a sense, even though capital is now emerging from these other kinds of nodes of capital accumulation, the power of or the durability of the imperial uh, power is uh, demonstrated through the sort of the milieu, the rules, the regulations, the space of operation in which capital from other places operates. And that milieu, those sets of regulations are very much established in the North Atlantic world still. Mm. Now to go in a bit of a different direction, can you talk to us a bit about containerization? Because I'm absolutely fascinated with this process as it's this massive kind of radical transformation in the infrastructure of global trade without which the last round of globalization might not have even been possible. Yeah. But it's so rarely mentioned when we think of like the earth defining innovations of the previous century. How did it come to pass and how do you think it changed the global economy, labor relations, trade and kind of constituent national economies within the global economy as well? So here I would like to sort of pay um, tribute to an amazing book, which was enormously influential in the way I thought about my own project. And that's Mark Levinson's The Box, uh, which is an, mm. which is a history of containerization. I think yeah. the, the, the container uh, is now becoming actually much more of a presence because I don't know uh, about the US, but in the UK, for example, you see containers as little art spaces. You see them as pop-up kind of restaurants. You see them in mm. kind of trendy architecture. And so it is there in your face. And then, of course, if you live on a train route and uh, you know, even passenger train routes where freighters go by, you see the containers passing in front of you just very easily if you're waiting for a train. And if you're on a, in a port, you see container ships. And of course, aesthetically, they're kind of astonishing. They're these sort of behemoth container ships. They're quite striking to look at the symmetry, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So in a way, I think the container has, in a sense, invaded the public consciousness a lot more than it had, I would say, even 10 years ago. Now, what is interesting about it, you're absolutely right, that it is one of the most significant inventions in global capitalism facilitating sort of global trade on a scale unfamiliar beforehand than almost anything else that I can think of short of actually uh, 19th century invention of steamships. So um, mm. one of the things that uh, uh, Mark Levinson writes about and I, and I always found fascinating was that the person who came up with the idea of uh, a container did so in order to address two or three concerns. One of them was one, pilfering by dock workers, uh, by stevedores um, at the point of unloading of ships. This had often been considered a kind of an informal, if you will, increase in wages of people who were often notoriously underpaid and badly treated. Um, but it was one of the things that shipping companies really sort of wanted to limit. So pilfering was one thing. Number two was the number of people that would actually be involved in loading and unloading. And of course, when you have a container, if you have a me mechanized way of removing a container, you've reduced the number of people required to actually unload the amount of goods that is carried within a container. So in many cases, this, this again was a dock element, but also on board ships, um, uh, once you have containers, it becomes much, uh, the vast majority of the ships taken up by having to carry containers. You don't have to have as many people sort of dealing with the ship itself. And so you end up having fewer people on board ships as well. And the final thing that was quite um, striking about containers and the reason that it was considered to be 
quite significant was that it was um, intermodal. Uh, what that means is that it could easily be transferred from a ship to a train to the back of a lorry. And so in a way that allowed for the movement of goods in a much more, if you will, smooth, um, ostensibly frictionless way from the port into the inland um, for the transportation of goods. But what really actually, and this is again the interwovenness of war and commerce, which is so central to, to my argument, is that what really allowed for the container to take off was the Vietnam War. And the reason that it, the Vietnam War was mm. so significant was because um, the uh, American DOD, the Pentagon, was actually looking for a way to transfer warfighting material out to Vietnam in a way that was more efficient um, and cheaper. And so they looked at the container as a possible way of doing so. But what was fascinating about it was that the container ships that were chartered, they were, they were private ships that were chartered by the Pentagon, would end up going to Vietnam. They didn't want to come back in ballast. They wanted to come back with, with something. So they ended up going to Japan and loading electronics there and taking the electronics back across the Pacific to the US, which of course is the beginning of the electronics revolution that the Japanese started in the 19, uh, and the way that it affected the, you know, American economy. It, but it's, it's the beginning of that kind of a moment in which you see the uh, facilitation and ease of transport of goods from one location to another location in the globe at a, at, at not necessarily a faster speed, but at an, at a, an efficient, in an efficient way. In a um, in a more robust sort of way uh, than we had before, and so that's that moment in the 1960s becomes really quite a, a significant moment. Um, I want to talk now a little bit about your recent essay for the LRB on the Belt and Road Initiative. Let's start by talking a little bit about what exactly you're referring to with um, with Belt and Road. So I think there's some confusion as to what this actually means, like you know thinking it's kind of a, a long road that goes all the way through Asia or something. So can you talk to us about the kind of yeah. constituent projects that make it up? Yeah. So I think um, in 2013, uh, Li Jinping, uh, Xi Jinping sorry, announced the establishment of the, at the time it was called One Belt, One Road initiative. And the belt was actually on land and the road, kind of counterintuitively, was a maritime silk road on the sea. And what it was actually, this 2013 plan wasn't necessarily a new plan, but it was actually taking a number of different infrastructure and logistics projects that the Chinese were involved in, in Asia, uh, Central Asia, South Asia, and Africa, and putting them under this title and then ramping up the amount of investment that was going to go into it. So what this is, is essentially a series of infrastructure projects that begin from various manufacturing centers inside China and extend in multiple directions, both on land and on sea. And the infrastructure projects are often things that have to do with transport primarily, but also extractive industries and in a few instances manufacturing but mostly it is extractive and transport industries for example the uh, belt and road initiative the belt uh, bit which is uh, as i said on land uh, has uh, sees multiple train lines going primarily through central asia but some also to southeast asia and terminating in places like um, myanmar and singapore and uh, in in europe in budapest which then connects to western 
European railways. Uh, and we've seen, for example, a train that has left Guangzhou and has arrived in Hamburg, another one that has arrived in Rotterdam, carrying more expensive, more valuable goods that need to travel a little bit faster than sea, because I think that trip from Guangzhou to Rotterdam is about three weeks. It takes three weeks. The Maritime Silk Road is uh, actually wraps around Southeast Asia and South Asia, and it goes in once there. Once it wraps around that that those bits of Southeast Asia and South Asia, it goes in two directions. It either goes through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal to the Mediterranean, or it goes down the coast of East Africa. And essentially, again, as I said, what the Belt and Road Initiative, what is intended to do, is it's intended to facilitate both infrastructure construction for economic development. In, in Asia and Africa, uh, but also facilitating the movement of uh, raw materials to China and the export of uh, manufactured materials uh, in the other direction. What is distinct about it and what is different about just like an old school colonial project is that it includes an enormous number of infrastructure projects which are not necessarily about the transportation of goods. And they sort of fulfill the needs of many of these countries for those kinds of infrastructures. This is particularly the case with many of the train lines and roads and things that they construct. What is problematic about it is often the kinds of labor processes that are involved, the kinds of labor relations that are involved in many of these places. In many instances, the Chinese companies don't necessarily acknowledge collective bargaining rights. Often they have managerial systems which sort of reflect um, old school capitalist exploitative management processes. But uh, as I said, the reception to them is mixed. And they are they are quite interesting. We get it. We see a lot of attention to it precisely because both the Americans and the EU uh, seem to be itching for a kind of a new Cold War. And so they are casting this as a kind of a. I don't know, as a kind of a bogeyman, as, as China's, um, as China's tentacles expanding across the world. But, um, as I had hoped to write in that piece, it's actually a much more complicated picture. It's a much more complicated, um, image than what we are, um, accustomed to seeing or accustomed to hearing about. Do you think that this is a kind of pure example of, you know, the need to undertake capital export, particularly in an economy which is relatively closed, uh, in other ways? Or is it about facilitating trade or, you know, other kind of economic, motives versus the need for a kind of geopolitical expansion right. to act as a way to US hegemony. So um, I think it is a little bit of all of those things. Again, it's really important mm. to remember that the, B, the, the BRI, although, there, it, as I said, it had massive ramped up amount of credit extensions and sort of ramped up investments in these infrastructures, there were already a lot of existing these, these kinds of infrastructure projects in uh, a lot of the countries of Asia and Africa, where BRI is now seen to have made inroads. But th- those already predated the 2013 announcement of the initiative. Mm. And what is interesting about those is partially, of course, China has, over the course of the last 20 to 30 years, developed quite an, an amount of expertise and technolo- technological expertise and technological capacity. For example, in the piece I mentioned, railway construction in particular being one of those. In addition to that, um, as I also mentioned in the piece, um, David Harvey talks about how capital seeks, you know, the mobile capital often uh, seeks spatial fixes. And the best case of these spatial fixes tends to be infrastructures. And so mm-hmm. some of this is about the movement of capital in those instances. It is also that China is today still the factory of the world. And therefore, these 
infrastructure projects, particularly in East Africa, where there are massive extractive elements incorporated in them, but also some of the elements having to do with sort of oil transportation where China acts actually in concert with rather than being the primary investor in. They, they work in concert with many of the countries of uh, the Arabian Peninsula. In many of those instances, this is actually facilitating the trade in uh, raw materials that China needs in order to produce the kind of um, cargo that it then uses um, to export to the rest of the world. I'm sure there is also a geopolitical element, but my sense of the geopolitical competition is that this is more limited to China's own immediate neighborhood. So, you know, South China Sea and the Pacific, rather than, for example, that kind of geopolitical competition is more something that the US and its allies see in Africa, rather than it being something that China is trying to generate. So there's, there are very distinct characteristics to how BRI works in different parts of the world. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that because otherwise, we're not really quite getting the sense of how the Belt and Road Initiative is operating in a variegated and different sort of way in the different places that it's, um, you know, that it is generating new infrastructures. In your essay, you mentioned that where infrastructure goes, war tends to follow. Yeah. Should we be worried about what seems to be a kind of emerging new Cold War between the US and China reflected in kind of economic conflict, as well as what seems to be a kind of decline in popular sentiment in the West towards China? Obviously, China can't compete with the US really in military terms in terms of military spending. But what about other forms of conflict or kind of proxy wars? Uh, I mean, that's really interesting. I it, it, Interestingly, China has not been involved in proxy wars in the way that, for example, Russia has been against um, the US. So that's one thing uh, to, to take into account. It seems to me that if China is going to actually be competing with the US, it's in the sphere of geoeconomics rather than geopolitics. So they're much more um, interested in a kind of an economic co- competition and and facilitating a kind of an economic growth in China itself, then they are necessarily in trying to start a new Cold War. That said, yeah. from the US side, the US always needs a super enemy. It's, it's, it's the war is the kind of process that gives the US the ability to, I mean, it's a kind of military Keynesianism, if you will. Mm. It's just expenditure of money and, and contracts and sometimes complete and utter boondoggles. But, you know, the kinds of military industrial uh, production that seems to attract uh, congressmen and which, you know, the Pentagon is always happy to oblige in, in, in uh, procuring. And so, uh, in a sense, that Cold War uh, sensation is generated far more strongly in the US. And, and, and indications are that that kind of a popular, uh, declining popular sentiment that you're talking about happens in the aftermath of all the negative press that emerges. I think mm. that you see, for example, uh, the Trump era outright, unabashed, racist, um, anti Chinese racist policies generates a reaction even in sort of the kind of good liberals that no, wouldn't necessarily like Trump. So you see that, that as I said, that declining sentiment comes um, out of there. You also see sort of, re- you know, reduced number of Chinese students in um 
in the US and in Europe, uh, all of that, of course, leads to uh, the intensification of that sense of enmity or competition. So mm-hmm. it's extraordinary the extent to which it seems that the US in particular, but also the Europeans, seem to be itching to have an enemy, a kind of a scary enemy. And of course, that also feeds into yeah. long-standing anti-Chinese sort of myths of the Asian hordes at the gates of civilization kind of discourse, which you know we're, we've been familiar familiar with for hundreds of years, unfortunately. And so it's a very complex situation. And I think that that uh, complexity, you know, tends to feed into these methods of fear mongering um, in the US and elsewhere. I'm wondering how you think the left, socialists, progressives should be organising ourselves on this shifting terrain and orienting ourselves in what seems to be, you know, what, what is a very rapidly changing political and geopolitical context? Um, The one thing that I would say is global solidarities are absolutely necessary. I'm living in the UK where people's um, horizons of solidarity seem to have shrunken because of Brexit. And one sees, for example, Mm. a limitation in the ways in which we extend the sense of solidarity or sympathy to to our counterparts elsewhere in the world. And I do think, I absolutely think it is crucial, it is necessary for any kind of socialist organisation to reach out across those kinds of boundaries. Uh, it has Any kind of socialist organization has to be by necessity anti-racist, whether domestic mm. or internationally, because the only way that any kind of change can be affected and affected would be through these international solidarities. And I, and I think that that kind of uh, international solidarity and organizing also has to take, uh, in some instances, has to take the lead from those overseas to find out what they want, to find out how they organize, to find out what they demand in terms of the solidarities they need and for socialist uh, or progressive forces in the Atlantic world to sort of reach out to them and try to work in concert and sometimes even step back and allow those uh, international organizations that seem to be very successful in, in garnering some of the demands, some of their own demands to lead the way. Thank you so much, Zanay Khalili, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. It was great to chat to you. It was my pleasure as well. Ciao.